Hey everybody, welcome to Pit Stops to Podium, the Rev Partners podcast where we talk to execs who have competed in one, taking their companies from high growth to high scale. My name is Brendan Tallison. I am the co-founder and CEO of Rev Partners, and I'm delighted to have with me today, Kevin Gaither for this episode of Pit Stops to Podium. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Really excited to uh, to participate and, and, uh, and help you out, Brendan. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fun relationship that's been developing over a period of time. And I, I think it's Jeff Ignacio that actually connected us originally. And we were starting to talk about RevOps and sales. So this is, this is going to be a fun one for us. Uh, for our audience who may not be familiar with who Kevin is, she's got quite an impressive background. So I just want to share that with everybody to kind of let level set as to who you are. Um, so Kevin Gaither is the former SVP of sales at ZipRecruiter, um, where he led a team of over 550 inside and enterprise sales folks. So he knows a thing or two about sales. Um, so uh, recognized inside sales expert, hands-on technology sales leader with over 25 years of experience, uh, early stage to multi-million dollar businesses. And in fact, you've taken three companies into that Inc. 500, Deloitte, Fast 500 companies. So uh, very impressive background. Uh, and currently, Kevin, you are now serving as an advisor and consultant to a handful of early stage tech companies uh, and also serve as the co-host of SaaS Holes podcast, which I'm a big fan of. So this is, a, this is a treat for me to have you on and thanks for coming onto the show. You got it. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Let's uh, Let's get to it. Yeah, well, Kevin, we talked a lot about what you've done uh, from a work perspective, but I think it's always fun for our audience to understand who you are outside of work. Uh, so before we get into the meat of this conversation, uh, which gets into your core comps on sales, let's get to know who you are. So what are three fun facts uh, that our audience should know about you outside of work? Yes, there's probably only a handful of people out there that know all three of these facts. Some, some know some, uh, uh, but not others. I entered UC Davis back in 1988 with a degree in aerospace engineering of all things, um, and actually graduated with a degree in architecture. Reach out to me and I'll tell you the reason why. So that's fun fact number, number one. Fun fact number two, literally nobody ever told me that I should be in sales. And in fact, my first sales manager that we affectionately called El Diablo, by the way, not a nice dude. He uh, he told me that I should be an analyst instead of getting into sales. And by the way, the reason for that was because I was really metrics oriented even back in 1994, 1995, like looking at my numbers and he thought Before, I should be an analyst. Yeah, when, when, when it was more of an art than a science. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And then, uh, and then fun fact number three, uh, those that have heard me before have heard me say this. I've actually always said that if I had all the money in the world, I'd actually be a, uh, a math teacher. I love cranking on spreadsheets. Hate doing decks. I hate doing decks, but I love uh, love cranking on spreadsheets and working on uh, math problems because, uh, as you said, uh, sales has become more of a science than uh, than art these days. And somebody who is a you know aerospace engineering wannabe kind of systems thinking kind of fits in fits in play there. So how, this is kind of off script, but how did you go from that background into sales? Yes, um, I'm also incredibly competitive. And my first job out of school, so you have to understand back in 1993, we're in a little mini recession, Brendan, and uh, their jobs for architects, by the way, were not uh, not a plenty. And so I just took a job in customer service, wearing a headset, 1-800-DIAL-BEN, how can I help you? And I was making 10 bucks an hour. And that was all the money in the world to me. But I was sitting right next to another guy who was making $11 an hour. And, you know, we talk, we eat, how much you make? He's like, I make 11 bucks an hour. 
I'm like, how in the hell do you make 11 bucks an hour and I make 10 bucks an hour? And he's like, I've just been here longer. And that drove me crazy because he didn't score as well on his tests. They had me training new people that came on board and it drove me crazy. And I thought, how in the world can I then do something to control my income? And I thought, one, I can start my own business or I can get into sales. And I didn't have the guts or the idea or the money to start my own business. So I, I forced myself into sales. And my mom, I remember her saying, but what if you don't make your quota that month? You know, like, <laughs> like I'm not going to eat or something like that. But I just, I burned the ships, man, and uh, and just decided that I had to get into sales. And literally my very first commission check in my entire life was $19,000. Wow. Yeah. And that was through three months in, and we're talking $1995 too, by the way. So it was, it was a sizable check and I was very, um, I was very hooked, but it was all about being competitive. And I just had to, had to get into sales because I wasn't going to sit there, Brendan, and wait for a boss to give me a great review at the end of the year and give me like a 6% raise. Like right, I, I, right, I wasn't, right. wasn't going to be down for that. I wanted to give myself the raise. That's why I got into sales. Well, and it proved to be a great decision in light of the, the, the background we mentioned at the beginning of the call. So let, let's, di let's dive in a little bit because, you know, you know, in light of your experience, you've learned how to build uh, a sales organization, understand, you know, what it requires to be successful in sales. And so I think it's a, a really pertinent topic, especially in this current climate. Uh, and so the big idea that we want to talk about today, especially with you and your background, is how to recruit uh, and retain top performing yeah. sales talent. And so I think it'd be helpful for you maybe just to level set before we get into kind of the, the meat of this, like, why does that matter in, in this current climate today? Why should we be talking about sales talent, both on the recruiting and the retainment side? Well, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so hard to do. It's so, it's so hard to, uh, to hire people these days, even, even higher, you know, than, than before. And you can have all the best product. You can best have all the best uh, uh, technology, you know, to support your salespeople. But if you put the wrong butts in the seat and don't uh, set proper expectations with those people that are, that are the butts in the seat, it's all for naught. It's all for naught. And so recruit, like focusing and, you know, everyone says you got to focus on your employees and all that kind of stuff. You know, but how to do that really strategically and tactically so that you can look for the right people, attract the right people, but then retain them over time. Um, that, that's where the real magic is. And like I said, I'm just going to repeat, you can have the great product and you can have awesome tech and awesome benefits and all that kind of good stuff. Snacks in the office, you know, if you ever get back in the office. But, but if you don't uh, attract and retain uh, high quality talent, you're, you're screwed. Yeah, I like that. So let's let's park on the first side because we're, we're going to talk about recruitment and we're going to talk about retainment. And yep. so let's how how do you get people into the organization? Uh, and then we'll talk about how to keep them at the organization. Uh, so when we talk about recruiting, uh, I like how you kind of frame it. You have this idea of define what great looks like, and then you define what a great efficient process looks like. And a lot of your experience of building a 550 person organization as a recruiter, I think you have a pretty good understanding of what that looks like in terms of what to do and what not to do. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think what would be helpful. Uh, Kevin, I might pull up a screen uh, for sure. those that are looking at this video so they can see your slides as you talk through both what great looks like and efficient process, because I think there's some really sure. good information on that slide as you start talking through that. So I'm going to share my screen now. Um, and so if you're on audio, I would encourage you to come and listen to the video. Um, so let's first talk about what great looks like, Kevin, on, on your side with recruitment. 
Yeah. So, you know, I learned this lesson long ago and made a lot of mishires. Um, and I really hated having that conversation where, hey, it's not working out. So, you know, we have to go. And so I wanted to mitigate that as much as possible, because when you hire somebody, you kind of fall in love a little bit when you make a hire. And so, you know, I, I didn't want to have those breakup conversations. How can I improve my probabilities of success? You know, th th this is definitely not a binary type of thing. And one of the things I learned was um, to define what great looks like. What is that? That's quite simply a hiring benchmark. You know, if anybody knows Stephen Covey out there, you know, one of the seven habits is beginning with the end in mind. And so, uh, and so you have to answer this question. This is, you know, very tactical for your listeners. If the job could speak to me, what would it tell me that it needs to be successful? Okay. And what you'll go through is a very, uh, a very uh, awesome brainstorming process where you just, you know, greenfield, get a whiteboard with seven people in a room, those that do the job, support the job, manage the job, just get in the room and you start to writing out characteristics, need for achievement, coachability, uh, competitive, um, you know, good communication skills, highly organized, you know, whatever it might be, process driven, and you just start writing this stuff down. And then you start prioritizing and combining like, well, that sort of sounds the same as this, whatever. And you narrow it down to like, eight to 12 different characteristics of what good looks like in the job, again, or great looks like. Again, if the job was to speak to me, what would it tell me that it needs to be successful? Once you've narrowed it down to those eight to 12 characteristics, Brendan, then define what those things actually mean. Why is defining so very important? Because one person might think coachability means one thing, an interviewer, a hiring manager might think coachability means one thing. Whereas another hiring manager might think that coachability means something else. So agreeing on what that definition of coachability means uh, is critically important. So we're going for the same thing. So we're gaining alignment on what great looks like in that particular characteristic. Then from there, you come up with your three or four behavioral interview questions that help you identify at what level does this candidate possess that particular skill. No candidate is perfect. You're not likely to find, you know, fives all down the line, but tell me about the last time your manager gave you feedback and then tell me what you did about that. Okay. In the coachability example here. Okay. Um, tell me about a time that you actively went out and sought uh, an improvement for yourself without being prompted, uh, to, you know, whatever. So all these behavioral based questions. And so most people don't do this, by the way, they just say, you know, Hey, Brendan, I have this candidate coming in today. Uh, can you sit with them for a second and, and, uh, you know, tell me what you think. You, you don't know what you're going for. And usually what you end up doing is an incredibly biased exercise of do I like them or not? Right. And that, and that is that is one jacked up way to uh, to, to interview candidates. Um, so instead, I'd say, Brendan, I want you to go in there and evaluate this candidate based on coachability and organizational skills. And here's the pieces of the benchmark that I want you to you to ask. Um, and I'm giving you a mission. <laughs> I'm giving you a mission to ask these questions and then tell me, does this candidate, at what level does this candidate possess coachability, need for achievement, whatever those things might be. So let me stop right there. You good there on what uh, great looks like? Yeah, I, I love it, it. To me, it's it, it's being creating an intentional process behind it. We'll get into more of the process in a second, but it's, it's putting the, the burden and the responsibility on 
the manager versus the candidate in my mind. It's like, you need to be the ones driving this and knowing exactly what success looks like yes. um, and eliminating the subjectivity that so often happens yes. uh, to your point of, do I like this person or not? And that's, yeah. that's not, that's not going to set you up well for success. Um, yeah, if there's any listeners out there that are still asking the questions, um, tell me about yourself, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. You're doing it wrong. It means you have no intention. It's a great point, Brendan. No, no intention. Well, Kevin, this is, this is likely informed by some of the uh, lessons learned along the way. So, so we talk about things to do. <laughs> yeah. We already kind of just teased out what not to do. Uh, but yeah. let's talk through that a little bit further because I think there's some good practical insights, tips, and tricks that uh, our, you know, our audience, especially those who are building out a sales team, can, can definitely uh, benefit from. Yeah, no doubt. So, um, uh, mistakes that I've made in the past is where I've looked at my top producer and said, Chad or Sharon, those are my top producers. Why don't we just, you know, what, what did Chad and Sharon do? This is equivalent to, you know, the Jacksonville Jaguars, which is the worst team in the NFL, uh, for those that don't watch football, um, worst team in the NFL, looking at their top receiver and saying, okay, we want to, you know, clone our top wide receiver. That's what's going to get us to a Super Bowl. You're missing out on what it takes to be the best wide receiver, you know, in the NFL, uh, to help you get to the, uh, to help you get to the Super Bowl. So don't, don't look at your top producers. Um, especially if you're an early stage company, you may only have one or two salespeople. So now you look at those one or two salespeople and are like, Oh, let's just clone Tom. Don't clone Tom, <laughs> ask yourself what the job needs to, and you'll make tons of mistakes because you're trying to find Tom, but you're missing out on the characteristics that, that you need for that job, for that salesperson to cr uh, crush it. Number two, this is not, um, uh, it's not binary, binary. It's not, a, uh, how do I put it? It's not, well, right there on the screen. It's not black and white, okay? And so you may find a scenario where you've got this benchmark, for example, and you go down the list, and people are giving you good answers to the question, but there's something behind the scenes that's like, it's not clicking. You're not, there's, there's pheromones going back and forth and something's weird, you know, if, but yet you're getting all the right answers, but something doesn't feel right. You have to trust that. And I've made mistakes there where I go, well, look, they answered all the questions the way to do Then I hire this person there, cuckoo for coconuts, man. Like, so, so you, you gotta, you gotta make sure that you listen to that gut as well, but that gut doesn't come first. It's the objective analysis informed by the insights that are coming from your gut where it's like something just doesn't fit here something doesn't make sense you know here um you know maybe maybe they can't manage their zoom every time i get on a call with them it takes them 10 minutes to get their zoom up and running and their camera running but then when i do get up and running they answer all the questions properly you got to trust that gut and then finally don't force yourself to fall in love with a candidate you can convince yourself and go god well you know that was uh yeah, maybe I should hire them. Maybe no. And the way that I've looked at this is hiring is like falling in love. You know it. You know it when you feel it. You're like, this feels right. If you find yep. yourself going, God, I, you know, I'm not sure if I should make this hire. Maybe uh, uh, don't make the hire. <laughs> don't make the hire because I have made the mistake where I just go, I'm not sure, but I made the hire anyway. And I'm telling you, literally every time I've convinced myself to like a candidate and make the hire every time it's been wrong. And that's not hyperbole. Every time it's been wrong. So don't convince yourself to like a candidate. I can uh, sympathize with that last bullet. <laughs> uh, trust your gut. So I, I really like that. So uh, these, are, these are really good practical insights. That's why I like this podcast format because it's giving 
you know, based on your experience, giving our audience some insights on what they can take back to their organization. So we, we talked a little bit about, you know, defining what great means. Yep. Uh, now let's get into like the process side, because what, yeah. one of the interesting findings we saw uh, on a recent study was just the speed at which people want to go. And so one of the things yeah. that I love, both from the interviewer and from the interviewee, that speed is really important. And I think the next section is really great because you create a framework yeah. uh, of how to drive efficiency in the process. So let, let's talk a little bit about uh, how you think about a process from a recruitment perspective. Yeah. So, well, first of all, there has to be one. Okay. It can't just be, you know, haphazard in any way, shape or form. Um, and I, you know, I, when prepping for this, I, I thought to myself that ah, in today's labor market, a thorough process probably doesn't probably doesn't work because the candidates won't tolerate it. And so I actually put a poll out on LinkedIn to find out like, what do candidates want? Do they want a, you know, a lengthy, you know, very detailed process? Do they want it just to sort of be you know, one or two calls, make me the offer and I'll choose, or they still want it to be, you know, a couple of weeks and still be, you know, thorough. My gut told me that, that the, that candidates these days, just give me the offer. You know, I I'm in demand, a couple of calls, you make me the offer. And the truth is, and what I learned from the study is at 65, the poll that I um, put out there, 65% of my respondents they still want a thorough process that's like no more than two weeks. So they want time to be uh, sorry. They want to be selective about the places that they're going even. And it is a job seekers market, but they still, they don't want just like, Hey, you look great. Let's hire you after one or two calls. You know, that, that that's not good enough for candidates, especially because it's a uh, tight labor market. And so I show you this and remember one thing, Brendan, you can have a thorough process and still be quick. Okay. Yeah. Don't, you know, don't create a process that's intentional. I love the word that you've used before. Um, that's in, that's intentional. You have goals for each step of your, of your process. Um, but you also do it quickly. So for example, this is a process, uh, and I'll read it out loud for those that are doing the audio piece here. You know, you'd have, um, an application that has, you know, screening questions right out of the gate. Here's your pro tip, by the way. You don't need to review a resume. <laughs> Just look at the answers to the screening questions that candidates are, are giving you. And maybe there can be some uh, open-ended text questions in there as well. Um, and that should take the candidate, you know, five minutes to fill that stuff out. Have a 15-minute phone screen. Have an inter a 45-minute interview with the sales manager. Then have a 45-minute behavioral interview where you're going deeper into some of those behavioral interview questions on the benchmark. Um, a sales assessment. Take it or leave it, by the way. Some people like sales assessments, like those personality assessments or sales assessments they take offline. I, I've liked them in the past. Then in face-to-face in -face interviews, three, you know, 90 minutes of face-to-face -face interviews, and then do your reference checks, you know, thereafter. This is a, a real process that we used, that I used at previous companies um, to help me improve my probabilities of hiring good candidates. A lot of people have said that don't do a process like this have said that's it's too much can you know high quality candidates won't do that. It's not true. And here's why, because you're setting the tone with these candidates that not everybody makes it through this process. It's like the NFL combine. Okay, not everybody can make it through the NFL combine to be in the NFL. Um, and so establish and however your process looks, I'm suggesting you have a process that is that has multiple steps with it so that you have multiple data points with the candidate and that and that the candidate 
also has multiple data points with uh, with uh, with you. Yeah, I think the the impulse reaction when seeing this, I was just trying to count up. I'm not great at math. You're more the math guy than I am. <laughs> but I was counting up the minutes on the on the the chart that it's in front of me, and it's you know four plus hours of yeah. uh, activity. Um, and the knee jerk reaction is, man, that's a lot. Who has the time to create that? Uh, and then I'm reminded of we had Rob Foreman on previously. Rob's one of the co-founders of Salesloft. Um, and Rob talked a lot about how, from a like recruiting perspective, as a leader, like would argue that that is, if not your number one priority, it's in your top two or three. And yeah. like, so you you need like, there's nothing more important <laughs> than creating this framework to ensure you get the right people in the right seat. So, yeah. um, and I think a lot of people just default to lazy is too strong a word, but like it just the default is I don't want to create this because that's just too much work for me to do. But like, yeah. if you're a leader and you're building a sales organization, it it creates leverage and allows you to scale your organization because you get the right people in. That Well, that's correct. Look, the old adage goes, hire slow, fire fast, okay? This is part of gathering as much data and insights through that interview interview process. And if you do it quickly and haphazardly, you're not getting standard sets of data against which you can improve your probabilities of hiring success. And that's what this is all about, improving your <laughs> probabilities of hiring. Brendan, I thought about this in terms of uh, before our call today. You can literally ask anybody, any hiring manager, do you think you're good at interviewing? And I guarantee you that like 80, 90% of them would say they, they're really good at interviewing. Yeah. But none of them likely have actually measured their probabilities of success with their hires. And here's a simple, simple way to do this. Look back on, on uh, people that you've hired after six months and ask yourself, knowing what I know now, would I do it again? Is, is that number better than a coin flip? Because most people have it as good as like coin flip or 30% hiring success rate. I was able to, after screwing up for year after year after year and having those uncomfortable termination conversations, I was able to, at business.com, I was able to increase my probability of success uh, up to almost 80%. In other words, 80% wow. of the people that I hired, I looked back after six months and I said, knowing what I know now, I, I would hire that person, you know, again, and it started with a thorough intentional process with a benchmark and step-by-step, -step, you know, a real codified process. Hey, kind of sounds like a sales process, by the way. It sure does. Yeah. Uh, well, let, let's, I like this idea of, you know, you mentioned it's kind of a coin flip and like improving the probability. Uh, what are ways that will decrease the probability or at least create, Keep it very gray from a coin flip perspective. Yeah. Well, first of all, don't optimize your um, uh, don't op if you don't optimize your process, your hiring process. You know what I delineated before worked for me, um, and we changed it when I got to ZipRecruiter, and it was you know it was different thereafter. Uh, as an example, um, the demo. There's a lot of uh, candidates, sorry, candidates hiring processes out there where the last step is okay. You're going to come in and you're going to do the presentation. Okay, first of all, what does what does good look like in that presentation? Do you even have a scorecard for like what you're looking for in that in that? But number two, is there any sort of correlation between those that do well in that uh, in that demo presentation and uh, hitting minimum thresholds or achieving quota? And when I measured this, there was literally, and I had it in my process, but then I measured and looked. Guess what? I'm in LA. <laughs> 
actors did really, really well in that process, but there was literally no correlation between doing well in that demonstration or presentation um, and doing well on the job itself. And so I got rid of it. So make sure that you're flexible with your hiring process and you know expanding and contracting. At one company that I was at, we actually got rid of reference checks entirely because we found that, that literally they'd come back great a player fantastic all the time like of course they weren't but we ne but the point was we never um how do i put it the reference check was never a reason for us to get rid of a candidate in like 99.9 percent .9 of the situations. interesting so we got rid of it we did background checks obviously the legal stuff but we got rid of reference checks you know in uh, in entirely at one of my my previous companies overvaluing the bachelor's degree this one i i, I love to like snicker and i love to like <laughs> you know, taunt people on this particular topic. At ZipRecruiter, we hired thousands of salespeople over, over the years, thousands. And we had uh, a very large data, data science team. And that the net net here is the end story was, we found that having a bachelor's degree did not improve the probabilities of a salesperson hitting uh, hitting quota or not. Uh, end of story. And so it it opened up the hiring spigot for us because we, now we didn't require a bachelor's degree anymore. Which, by the way, it's like great. Other companies you're going to require it. Your the pool you're fishing in is smaller. <laughs> Fine. Those that want a competitive advantage, forget the bachelor's degree. And then I gave you this other one before, like reviewing resumes. For God's sakes, <laughs> it's a marketing vehicle, okay? If you're any company of any size, you've got an applicant tracking system of some basic level, and that applicant tracking system likely has screening questions when they apply. And it's either upon the application or after the application, they fill out, you know, you have them fill out um, screening questions, some of them, most of which should be binary in nature. If you have a, as an example, the compensation for this role is a base salary of 75,000 and variable of 75,000. Does that meet your expectations? Yes or no? <laughs> Simple as that. That's binary. I want to kick those people out. I don't care what their resume says. If the comp doesn't fit their expectations, why do I want to talk to them? Um, right. uh, if you're in the office, if you require being in the office, this is a job that requires being in the office. Is that acceptable to you? Yes or no? Um, this is a job that is uh, highly transactional. You'll be required to sell about 20 transactions a month. Um, you know, does that, uh, do you have experience doing that? Or stated in a different way, my previous sales have been highly transactional, you know, six to 10, you know, six to 20 transactions per month, uh, very strategic and complex, two transactions per, you know, per quarter. What kind of salesperson are you? If you're highly transactional, why would you hire somebody who oh, all they have is this enterprise level experience? You want to create these binary checks because in order to get through, you're gonna you're, you're gonna literally go through you know 100 resumes to make three hires. Yep. How can you how do you shorten that out? Don't review resumes. That's that's your hack there. And the mistakes I made was like looking at resumes and it's like for God's sakes, just give me the binary data. I like it. So these are great tips and tricks. Um, let's transition. So we've talked a lot about the first part of this is talking about how to get the right, get people, getting people in. So how do you get the right people in the right seat? But I think the next part is just as important as once you get them in, how do you keep them? <laughs> and yeah. so let's talk through, you know, I really like that you kind of have three core yeah. topics in this section. And we're talking about like the onboarding experience, you know, creating clear expectations 
and then uh, them understanding what is their career path look like so that there's clarity uh, for that. You know, I won't call them a candidate at this point. This is an employee. Um, yeah. And so let's let's talk through some of these kind of practical tips that you've outlined to ensure that the onboarding experience goes well, that the yeah. expectations are clear, and that they yeah. have a trajectory that they're excited about. So let's start on the onboarding side. Yeah. So I'm going to steal one from the great Trish Bertuzzi at the Bridge Group in, uh, in yeah. Massachusetts. You know Trish? She's great. She's great. I, 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 I look up to her. You know, some people call me an inside sales expert. She is the inside sales expert, in my opinion. And I'll steal this one from her. This is what she said in the past. You make the strategic decision to make a hire. But then you make the tactical mistake of poor onboarding. And it couldn't be further. I mean, it couldn't be, you know, more true. Um, you know, you, you, uh, you hire somebody and maybe it's one off or there's three or four people and they sort of go sit with that person. What's next? Um, okay. Um, go sit with that person over, you know, over there. And there's no like real goal and there's no agenda and things like that. And, and so what you want to do is, and this could be very fast. You know, I believe in, you know, get the salesperson onboarded as quickly as possible and on the phones as quickly as you possibly can. Um, three days, four days, I mean, it depends on how complicated your, you know, your product and your sale is there. Um, but day one, they sit down. First thing you're doing is you're handing them their schedule. Now, remember, Brandon, they have bet their future on you. They have made a decision that they want to be with you. It's kind of like, you know, imagine going out to a, you know, on a date with somebody and you go to, I don't know, Chili's or Applebee's or whatever you, wherever you like to go. And you, you show up to meet this person. You're really excited to meet them. And, and then they're sort of like on their phone and distracted, like the whole time. And you're like, my God, I'm like, I'm betting on you, but you don't seem to have your stuff to, you're not really that into me. You don't really yeah. seem that into me. And that's how some people do this onboarding process. So instead, uh, instead, you want to paint a picture. Here is your schedule for the next three days or three weeks or whatever it is. And I would literally delineate it out. 8 a.m. to 9, you're meeting with Billy. You know, 9 to 10, you're meeting with Jane. And this is the topic that you're, you know, that you're covering. And, you know, 5 o'clock, we're going to do a roundup with KG um, and a quiz the next morning. And I'm delineating all this so that, Brendan, they have zero time to think about whether or not they made a bad decision or not. Because when you say, go sit with Jane, go sit with Bob, go do shadowing, go, go shadow so-and-so. For God's sakes, we have gong, we have chorus. Why is shadowing even a thing anymore? But anyway, um, <laughs> you know, have these candidates, these new hires that you've invested in, paint a really clear picture of what we're going to, you know, going, going to accomplish. Um, and as I put on this slide in particular, you want to cover sales training, company training, product training. What's company training? You know what? It doesn't hurt to go through policies and procedures and expectations with the with the sale with your you know employees, you know what our culture is, you know, is like. Product training, that's where most people tend to focus anyway. They're here click here, click here, click here. This is how our product works. That's not the kind of training that I'm talking about. I'm talking about like, yes, you need to do that, but then you need to, you know, like a sales engineer could help translate what that feature, what pain that feature solves. That's a better conversation uh, as well as doing role plays and doing the presentation there and doing the openers and things like that. And then the sales training, don't forget, 
just because they they come to you with some sort of sales experience doesn't mean that you shouldn't give them sales training on how to handle objections or how to uh, you know do uh, discovery questions you know in particular that suits the sales leader and their their methodology. You need to you know provide that kind of uh, provide that kind of training. And so again, do you do you Kevin do you, do you find do you find that those are equally weighted from a training perspective or are there ones that you would say of, of these three of sales, company, and product? And, you know, these are the, this is the one that I would you know spend a disproportionate amount of time on. Yeah, um, I would say the sale. I would focus on the sales training, you know, component. What I, I think would be more important, followed very closely by the product training and weaving it, you know, weaving it together, you know, because I because I want to be able to I'd want to be able to, as an example. SDRs can be trained what qual and AEs can be trained like what qualifying questions to be asking. But if they don't know why they're asking those questions and how that relates to some of the product features that solve the pains that they're uncovering in the discovery, you know, so you kind of have to put it, you know, put it together. But I would definitely put the sales training, uh, sales training first. The company training just all relates to the, you know what it's like to work here, you know, and that's, that, that's important. You know, you're, you're in our house now. So you're, you know, clean up after yourself and put your dishes away, uh, you know, just setting expectations in that, in that regard. And then the next after grade onboarding uh, is, is clear expectations. And I spoke a lot about that just, you know, just now on the company training, but I mean this to be something different. Um, I learned this from Dale Carnegie a long, long ago, there is uh, there's this thing that they created, at least I think they created, called the PRD, the Performance Result Description. What I like about this, coming from the you know aerospace engineer architect guy, um, it objectively defines what good looks like. It's not a job description. It's it's what you know what good looks like in this uh, in this particular job, um, so that it's really clear. I have a client right now, as a matter of fact, that's saying, yeah, how do I get my SDRs to make phone calls? Like, what do you mean? How do you get them to make phone calls? Did you set the, have you defined <laughs> what good looks like? Have you defined that the, in order to do the job well, you need to be doing a combination of activities, you know? Um, and so, you know, creating something that, that objectively defines, you know, what it looks like, you know, maybe in your world, you know, Brendan, uh, you hire an operations person, and what good looks like means that you know ninety percent or ninety nine percent of the tickets that they receive is are um, you know um, opened in you know less than twelve hours, scoped in twenty four hours, uh, and uh, resolved with you know ninety nine percent satisfaction or something like that. But you're you're objectively defining what good looks like in that uh, in that job. Um, on the slide, the number one item here was what's it take to get fired around here? This is one of the things that I do when I come into sales organizations. I ask that brutal question to the salespeople directly. So do you know what it takes to get fired around here? You'd be shocked at how few salespeople actually know what it takes to be fired around here. Why is that important? I'm no psychologist, Brendan, but uh, somebody once told me that there's this thing called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's like a pyramid. <laughs> and at the base of the pyramid is security. And in order to get to your higher self, like, you know, high performance, you need to have a level of security. So knowing how you're going to get your ass fired or, or not knowing, actually state this the other way, not knowing how your butt's going to get fired creates that insecurity 
It's an unstable yeah. ground from which you're trying to do your job, but you don't know, is 99% a goal three times in a row, missing goal? Am I going to get fired for that? And Billy just got fired on February 1st. I don't know why. I don't know why Billy got fired. Am I next? Was it random? Is that layoffs? Or did Billy do something you know, incorrectly in the job? So writing that down very clearly, what does it take to get fired? What does it take? Number one, you're going to mitigate risk. So when you want to actually terminate somebody, it's written down. It's very clear. And that commission plan is signed. Um, yep. That's incredibly important in uh, in my my opinion, and making sure that it's very transparent. Uh, you know what it takes to get uh, to get fired. We'll talk about you know the the opposite of that on the you know the next slide in a second there. Um, and then you know this is hard. Look, I've done the job of leading sales, but then I'm also sort of operations, and I'm also a little bit of recruiting, and I'm a little bit of HR. Like I've been at startups my entire career, and so I know that wearing multiple hats thing. And one of the things that's helped me tremendously is having a written policies document that's a living, breathing document in Google Docs or, you know, back in the day, um, Salesforce had the solutions tab. They don't have that anymore, but this living, breathing document that delineates, you know, standard operating procedures and all these if then statements um you know who owns this lead when when there's a conflict which happens all the time you know starting to write those things out um make it really really clear i even have a document that says if you're sick stay home now again this is when we were in the office if you're sick stay home if you know and this is when it was just startup type of type of type of stuff if you don't write it out people don't know what to do and then you run yourself into a situation of like, well, they should just know better. Uh, 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 no, no, no. Let's not assume. Let's not yeah. assume. Okay. Um, and we talked about the PRD. You know, what's what does it take to do the job well? But but the next piece, after setting those clear expectations, the next piece is like a really good career path. And uh, you know, the visual here de delineates what promotion means, what goal means, and what demotion means, or termination, of course. Um, and what you want, stated positively, <laughs> what you want, Brendan, is a scenario that you can, when you hire a high-performing person out of the recruiting process, you're discussing a promotion path, because guess what? Every candidate says, what's my career path? Every single one is going to say, what's my career path? And if you say, oh, well, we got, you know, one level and it's uh, to senior AE two or, you know, or AE level two or senior AE or something like that. And, and that's it. They're, they're wondering, well, what else is there, you know, for me? Okay. What's really critical in establishing, establishing a, a career path like this is you're establishing a promotion threshold that is above goal. Brendan, if you hit your goal, I'm saying to you, thank you for doing your job. I'm paying you your market compensation. That is not promotion worthy. You just met my expectations. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Promotions should be challenging. Promotions should be difficult. Promotions should be reserved for your top 20%. Promotions shouldn't just be handed out, you know, because you just showed up and hit your goal. So you want to delineate if you envision the world uh, of your salespeople as a bell curve, okay, your promotions occur at the far right-hand side of your, of your bell curve where not everybody's going to get there. Everybody has the chance to get there. 
but not everybody is going to get there because you've set that at 120% to go, 150% to go, or whatever that might might be. And you are also setting that with um, high specificity. You're saying, okay, your quote is $100,000 of ARR per month. If you hit $120,000 of ARR per month for four out of the last six months, then you will earn an automatic promotion, period, end of story. There's no presentation. There's no interview. You come to your manager and say, pay me, sucker, because you've earned it. You've made it very, very clear. So you've delineated what promotion looks like, and you divined uh, the consistent performance. You know, everybody has seen the salesperson, Brendan, that, uh, hit, you know, close that one whale. That was the one whale. And then they get a promotion. And then they don't do so good after they get promoted. Okay, fine. So what we want to delineate is that high performance over a consistent amount of time. So if you're doing enter enterprise sales, you might delineate, you know, two quarters in the last three or three quarters in the last five at 120%, uh, you know, or greater. That way you can mitigate the, you know, the whales getting people to promotions, you know, promotion thresholds. And like I said, have, have multiple levels to it, not just one level. Cause once your top producer gets to that next level, they're going to say, well, what's next? Well, that's it. We got senior AE. Congratulations. They're going to be looking for something else. You want to retain these people by putting into, uh, in, into multiple levels. And to be clear, this is a bonus, higher base, higher variable at each one of these levels and a higher quota. I've seen this mistake so many times where they increase the base and they increase the variable, but they don't increase the quota. No, the, financially, it still has to make sense for the business. So increase that, that quota. They're going to make more money. Ideally, you're giving them higher quality leads. You're putting them into a better territory, you know, too, if you, if you, you know, can do that. Um, but higher base, higher variable, and higher quota goes along with that. Yeah, I, I love this framework. I mean, I think to me, what it speaks to is it it removes the ambiguity. Yes. It helps define the rules of the game. Um, and if you have high performers, which inevitably you're going to with the whole probability, you're increasing the probability, but you're also saying, hey, here's the path yes. uh, that we can lay out for you if you do perform. And yes. so I, I like the, to your point, you have level one all the way to level four. If you have high performers, they want to know not just what it looks like, um, next step, but I like, Hey, I want to be a VP of sales. I want to be a CRO. Uh, yeah. I want to know what that looks like over a five to 10 year period. So giving them that found or the, not a foundation, but really the, the framework. Um, yeah. if you're a high achiever, you're going to do it because <laughs> that's what you want. So, uh, yeah. you're making it very clear that there's an exchange here, um, yes. that if you do these things, we will reward you. And this is what it looks like. Yeah, that's right. Obje objectively, you know, some of these promotion processes, it's like you have to interview for it and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, no, don't mess around, you know, just make it very clear. There's the target. Here's where you you, you need to get to. And uh, and when you get there, we will give it to you. No questions, you know, no questions asked. Um, and and that that is, you know, if you do, if, if anybody is listening to this and can do those five things in the two areas, recruiting and retra retaining, and do you know the two things in the recruiting and the three things in the you know in the retaining? Is this easy stuff? No. But if if you can cordon off that time, slow down to speed up, build those things into your into your company, you will be improving your probabilities of uh, of success in hiring and retaining high performing uh, salespeople. 
Yeah, it's. It, I love the you know improving the probability. I mean, what? Sure, there costs more time on the front end, but the back end is where you reap the reward. And it's like, so if you don't do it, then you have to deal with the churn that you talked about and trying to find more talent. That's just cost yeah. prohibitive versus put the upfront yeah. work in and then you start to see the leverage when you get these top performers that are coming in with their probability increasing. So yeah. Kevin, I love learning about how to recruit and retain top sales talent. This has been super informative for me and I'm Great. sure it has been for our audience. Um, if our audience wants to engage with you, uh, what is a way, like what social media platforms are you active on that they can reach out to you? Yeah, um, LinkedIn is probably the best way. Just find me on LinkedIn, you know, uh, forward slash Kevin Gaither, I think is what uh, what it reads there. Um, shouldn't be hard to, to find me there. Um, and frankly, email me if you want, kevingaither at gmail.com. Not, not difficult uh, from there. Um, I just got my TikTok account set up about four months ago. So oh, nice. if anybody wants to follow me there too, but but. LinkedIn and email is probably uh, probably best from there. And I'm happy to help. I love helping people out. So don't be bashful. Reach out to me. Love to help you. Well, I can speak firsthand that that is a, a genuine statement. Uh, Kevin has been a great resource for me and, and become a, you know, a great contact as we've gotten to get to know each other. So uh, Kevin, thanks again uh, for stopping by. Really appreciate your insights on this topic. I look forward to continuing the conversation. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers.